Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's guest is former Republican prisoner and provisional IRA member Dixie Elliott. The dairyman was just 19 years old, almost 20, when in 1977 he was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment for attempted murder, hijacking and IRA membership. Whilst in prison, he shared cells with H-block hunger strikers Bobby Sands and Thomas McElwee, also provisional IRA members. Now 65 years old, the Republican says the years of violence were for nothing and that the IRA leadership should have ended its campaign of violence in 1987. Although a supporter of peace, he says the Good Friday Agreement is a scam. Dixie, you're very welcome on today's podcast. Thank you, Patricia. Why do you believe the Good Friday Agreement is a scam? Well, I believe it's a scam because the uh, the terms of Good Friday Agreement was always on the table. From what I know, that when the IRA leadership met the British and Cheney Walk in London in July 1972, what they were offered was a troop withdrawal and amnesty for all prisoners. And this is they couldn't give United Ireland, but if such a time came about, that when the majority wished it, that, that they wouldn't stand in the way. That was also on the Sunningdale Agreement in 1973. The Sunningdale Agreement was exactly the same as the Good Friday Agreement, only there was a Council of Ireland and the Sunningdale Agreement. Therefore, there was nothing negotiated, as we are told, and there was reason why nothing was negotiated, because 1970 or 1987, according to Adams himself, uh, Humminfaller Reid went seeking peace, but they didn't tell the IRA. They approached Hockey. Hockey didn't want to be seen talking to Adams, so he used Hume as a go-between. And that was the start of Hume's Adams talks. And that was Charlie Hockey? Charlie Hockey, yeah. Now, while all this was going on, Hum and McGinnis continued to encourage war. People were dying. IRA volunteers were dying, civilians were dying, people were dying needlessly. They were dying to an aware that the IRA leadership intended in at some point when the opportunity arose. 
And in 19, uh, the thing was too, we often hear about McGuinness was a negotiator and stuff like that. Then. At, at the main players on the Sunningdale Agreement, or the Good Friday Agreement, was the SDLP and the, the Unionist Party. They were the big parties then. And the thing was that Sinn Féin wasn't allowed on the government until they abided by the demands of the British and the DUP, Paisley, uh, decommissioning weapons, supporting the police and stuff like that there. So they hardly negotiated a settlement. You know, they accepted what was on the table and everything else, and they played along with it. And now we're told it was a great thing. But this could have happened back in 1973 when the same thing was on the table. So why did it continue all this time? Why did the war go on and stuff like this and all these people die? And as I say, that when they talk about the peace process, the peace process is a scam for the simple reason that sectarianism is as bad as it ever was. It hasn't changed. The politicians use it to get elected and they use it to distract people from their own failures. And that they have, they have never changed nothing in 30 years for the ordinary people, especially the ordinary people in Derry. And uh, it's nothing has changed except for them. They've got richer and and, and the, the politics hasn't changed or anything else they can't stand on anymore. But still now we see Sinn Féin saying they're, they are now greeting, meeting and greeting the uh, royal family. They reach out for unionists, but the unionists still hate them as much as ever, which raises questions in my mind why they really, you know, I often start to believe this could be something to do with... Um, uh, the British Commonwealth. The Good Friday Agreement is flawed, in your opinion, without a doubt, but it did end 30 years of violence here. Is that not one, one good thing that has come out of it? Surely the, at the, the, the 30 years of violence ended in 1994, the first ceasefire. Okay, the first ceasefire broke, but there was another 1997 there was an R ceasefire, and then that, that's been continuous ever since. So it ended then, like it was ended then. And, but once they had set there, once Jerry Adams had set out to seek peace in 1987, and Adam McGuinness would have known about it, and that was the war, and they knew the war was in, so it was going to end then anyway. He was looking away around it. He knew that there was people in the IRA who wouldn't agree with it, and he had a carry them along until such the times was right. And that was costing people their lives. But the uh it was going to end back there. It was always going to end. You know, from that time on, it definite. They must have had a plan along before it. And I believe that they actually had ideas when during hunger strikes, when Bobby Sands won his election and Kieran Doherty and Paddy Agnew you won't see in the south that they decided, right, this is what we're going to do. But we have to take it slowly. Dixie, take me back to the reason that you were sentenced to 12 years in prison. Attempted murder, hijacking and IRA membership. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, the thing about that is... is it's very little to remember because we didn't recognise the courts. The courts became a battle. The uh, Crumlin Road 
jail and the courthouse was at the far side of the uh, Crumlin Road. There was a tunnel led from the Crumlin Road jail, still there to this day, across the courthouse. And we were taken across and that and was off in battles. We refused to do things. We had protests and stuff like that. And we were, during the remand, we were brought before a judge. That was all as far as we were concerned. It was blah, 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 blah. We had no solicitors. We didn't recognize the court, so we didn't have solicitors. So it was us in our own. We were brought before the court and we didn't listen to a word. He says, and blah. And it was the same in my sense. I don't remember a thing about the day I was sentenced to 12 years in jail. We were talking about, we were defiant. We stood in front of the court and we let him blah, 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 blah. You were sentenced to 12 years. I was actually surprised. Like I thought we got more, but 12 years was good. And well, I thought, you know, and, um, as I say, it was, uh, usually a, a, a six year, no sentence, like half remission, but ended up doing another three years on top of it. What were the circumstances of those charges? What, what, I mean, attempted murder, what, what well, had you done? Have right firing shots at the land over down there as Course Road, and that was the attempted murder. Hijacking the van was just hijacking the van for operation, and I already membership. You see, I, I was, uh, arrested. My door was kicked on and I was arrested, and, uh, at the time, they were just waiting. Now we believe, I believe, and we all believe it was an informer stuff. We were getting all arrested and what done. Do you have to understand? We were only young kids, nineteen. We were pulled in, and at that time, we had the castle rain, the strand, but road barracks and the buildings and stuff like that. They call it the conveyor belt. And I was brought in, and over the weekend, I didn't say one word. I had it my depths, I got my depths out, we were taking a kiss recently, and the barrister says, you sat for three whole days, and you did not say a word, you didn't give your name, he says nothing, and it's all down there, and the next thing on the Monday, you sign a statement. You don't give it, and you sign a statement, and then they ask you, and then you say you're saying nothing more, and you refuse to me. So, for no reason, you just, you're not speaking to these guys for three days, and then for no reason after three days, you decide, oh, all right, I'm going to sign a statement. It doesn't make sense. Of course they give you a bidding. Of course they get hammered. You know what I mean? And that's what happened. I had a ball patch on the side of my head where they dragged me along the floor back in. with was long hair. I had bruises on my chest where apparently I shouldn't have had bruises. Where it was punched, was held upside down, spread eagle. By, I was interrogated over the course by six branch men or CID men, who took it in terms of two each at a time. When two was finished, they went done. That's the way it was done. They they were there until they broke you. And I signed a statement that I didn't incriminate anybody else. It was just me. And after the signed, they started asking about others. And I says, no, nah, I'm not saying nothing more. That's it. Why did you sign the statement? Obviously, there was evidence against you that you... No, there was no evidence. It was my own admission. Why did you do that for? Because, as it says, I was got a beating for over three days, non-stop, by six different and groups of two. No break. They were taking the breaks from the hidings. I wasn't getting the breaks. They were. And, of course, 
many, there's a lot of men broke on the system. There. And, and when I say broke, I, I just admitted to these three things. I've done a lot more things, but I admitted these three things. And were you the gunman in this incident? Yes. You were the gunman? Yes. When did you first hold a gun? Well, when we were taking the training camps in Donegal, we were given arm lights and shorts and stuff like that and told they fire targets up in the mountains and away in the middle of nowhere. It was like an adventure. Do you know what I mean? It was, we were living out, camping out in the mountains at night and stuff like this, uh, by a fire and stuff like that. Or else when we were taken to ball making, it would have been like a cottage. I remember in a cottage somewhere. I don't know where it is, but I heard the waves outside. We were taken in the dark of night. So we cottage and you get it was beside the sea, the Atlantic Ocean. So you could hear the waves crashing up against the storm. And we were up in an attic roof space and learning how to make bombs and stuff like that. But as I say, the best part was when you were learning the shit. I remember being at the base of Muckish Mountain and firing under the mountain. Probably that mountain is probably rubber with bolts from IRA camps. You know, Muckish, the bottom of it, you know. I remember Muckish, and I remember another camp in the mountains around Leonard Magarward. I remember that there, and going up on the mountains. We thought we were a flying column. We all these, know what I mean? Up on the mountains, and you loved up in the mist, and you had to learn. But that's what we were taking away. Now, we were young guys. This was great. You know, you were going up, and you were, we were firing real guns, real arm lights, and stuff like that. You know, there was a body after all when you were doing that. Like, you know, there's no doubt about it. And stuff like that. For example, if you were going back then to this IRA training camp, there would be other boys or you know, friends. Friends. Yeah. And how many of you would be there? Well, from one area. We all knew one another. We're all friends. We all went to discos together. You know, we all stood around street corners together. You know, we're still friends, a lot of us. As I say, the guy was in the car. I was in the sa. You know, because he'd done time for it. The guy was in the care of young Michael Meenan, like when he was killed. He's been my friend since back then, my best friend since back then, you know. And all the other guys, guys on here, you know, we were all, from when we were kids, we were friends. We're still friends. You know what I mean? We've lost a lot of friends along the way who died, but we lost a lot of friends who took the wrong path, as we believed. You know, followed Sinn Féin. But when you were in these IRA training camps, I mean, you were you were you a young teenager, or were you? No, I was about for anything from between sixteen right up to was caught. They were all going things. So there was a group of you there, and then you would be trained by older IRA men, yeah. basically. Yeah. And you'd be taught bomb making, shooting, mm. and it was just like a big playground, basically. Well, that's what it was. It wasn't. You know what I mean? That was an adventure. I thought it would be but it was an adventure. I remember sitting up in the mountains, watching the road below, and the lake across from the road. And, you know, you thought you were in Tom Barry's flying column, you know. Did your parents have any idea of your involvement with the IRA? Um, not really. Um, my father, oh, sorry. Okay? Uh, my father, I remember one time going down the, um, Risk course road in the bag of ferret. He would have claimed in the bag of, this is what during rats, I would have claimed in the, the, the ferrets, uh, a sort of small tank with a machine gun. 
and um, I would have climbed on the back eight when it was going slow with a ton of paint and painted out the hatch. But I was in the back eight and I picked up speed and I was stuck in the back eight going down the race course road and I heard a car horn bumping behind me and I looked around and it was my dad. And I jumped off and my father says to me, no fear words that he said to me. He says, first of all, what were you doing in the back of that tank? And he says, what's going to happen to you is you're going to end up in jail or dead. And McGinnis is going to end up in a big house. That was his very words back then. And, you know, as I say, that would have been, he probably thought I was only writing and stuff. Because I'd actually, my father cried coming up to see me and Fuzzy Snow, and he couldn't believe it. You know, as I say, like, and my mother would have been too, but it was my father took it the hardest. You know, he didn't really believe it. He knew it was red, because he, he knew all kids read at that age and stuff. We'd done all that stuff. You know, he was young himself, and he was a tear away when he was young himself. He often told us that, because he's smaller day when he was young. And, uh, but I don't think he actually believed that I was a member of the IRA or anything like that, you know. Dixie, do you have any regrets? I mean, you went out to kill. You were quite happy with killing someone. I don't, I thought, truth be told, you know, we would say that now, and there was a lot of guys would say, oh, no problem. You know, it's not easy to kill somebody. I've never killed anybody. But, you know, you'd, you'd sit to say to yourself, oh, you know, would I have killed him? You know, would I have... If I had a shot that soldier in the back of Landover, would I have been able to love that? You know, I don't know, because I didn't shoot the soldier in the back of you know, and, and, and the back of Landover and stuff like that. But I know guys who did, and guys who was very, you know, did a lot of killing and stuff like that. Many of them guys is alcoholics now. Their heads is messed up. They're good guys and stuff like that. And they can't accept it. They kill people for nothing, for absolutely nothing. And that the people that were sending them out has now grown rich and they're traveling the world and they're meeting politicians. And a lot of them who, like us, like I can't get into America or Australia, but there was guys who was in jail along with me who can travel freely to America and Australia. You know, uh, the politicians, and not only the politicians, it was... I noticed uh, another boy saying he was just on his way back from uh, Melbourne. You know, I wouldn't get on to Melbourne, but this guy was a blanket man. But he's now on the side of Sinn Féin, you know. So what's going on there? Like, that's not... You spent much of your adult life, or a good portion of it, in the hitch box and you were on the blanket protest and you were in a cell with hunger strikers, Thomas McElwee and Bobby Sands. I mean, back then, your feelings were completely different. Yes. Can you tell me what that was like then and what those feelings were? Well, I strongly believed in what we were doing. I believe in the war. I believe it was just war. I still do. I don't, I didn't regret anything. Or you know, it's just that now, uh, as an old man or an older man, that I see now that it was a waste 
was a waste of lives, was a waste of hunger strikers' lives, was a waste of all the lives, the uh, civilians' lives, stuff. It was a waste. That's we just no. We've gone from fighting a war, and and the, the path that's been taken now is more or less the, the same path taken by SDLP. So therefore, what was it all about? And if I had known for one second when I was sitting in that cell, or when I was out in the street risking my life with a rifle as a 16, a 17, an 18-year-old, that I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have thrown stones for it. If I'd have known it was going to end like this, you know, it wasn't worth throwing a stone. And But back then, we believed what we were doing. It stands to reason who would love in their own excrement, who would take daily beatings and be starved and eat food that you knew was probably contaminated, you know, because it was times we were getting tea and you felt salty testing it and you, he says, you know, you knew what they were doing, like you knew you were urinating it and that. But why would we put ourselves through that and suffer it and suffer the humiliation of mirror searches and force washing and stuff like that for, you know, I was in, I was on the blanket from when I was sentenced to the end of it. I was, I was about four years and six months, I think, you know, about four years and four months, you know, why go through all that, all them years, you know, and we still believed it, and it's just that uh, that was the reasons we done it, and then we had these guys, like Bobby Sands and Tom McElwee and other guys, you know, they, these guys, you know, they kept each other going, it was amazing, the camaraderie was amazing, the, the way that people like Bobby Sands kept the morale up through stories, through songs and poetry and stuff like that there, you know, encouraging other guys to do likewise, and no matter how bad they were at it, you know, and speaking Irish, learning to speak Irish. The Hitch Blocks was a one big guilt hook. Even guys who had very little Irish still used it. No one, the screws couldn't cope with us. They actually brought some guy from the south, and he wasn't very good to try and, you know what I mean? They interpreted what we were saying. But the, uh, it was a privilege to be in a cell with Bobby Sands and Tom Agalby. They were different people, two totally different people. Bobby Sands was a thinker. He was somebody that inspired. He was a, a man who led from the front, like Brandon Cuse. He led from the front, and as he done on the hunger strikes, and he kept up the morale of the men through stories and stuff like that, and poetry, and simply as the fact that he was he was a guy that would never be broken. And Tom McElwee was a fighter, a hard man with a heart, and he took no nonsense from anybody. When I was in the cell with him, we got more hidings and all off because he had, because he just used his fists all the time against the screws and uh, against the blanket early. He refused to give him a half, a full cup of tea. He only half filled the cup and Tom gave him a hiding. Then when he came back around to collect the dishes and of course we got a hammer and flat and put on the boards and starved for a week. So it was a costly cup of tea like, you know, of never probably why I drink coffee now but uh, as I say like he, he was a gentleman and he, he was he was a great guy loved the country life and he often talked about stories told me stories he told me he was engaged to get married and stuff like that at his time and um, stuff like that he was a hero worship Francis Cuse who was his cousin 
And um, as I say, when they, after he went on hunger strike, before he went on hunger strike, before he left the wing, he gave me his rosary beads. I still have them. To this day, I took them through the, the prison system and stuff like that, old wooden rosary beads. And he says, that's all I have to give you. But at the end of the day, he gave his life. You know, and I said, another set, and we watched men like that walk under the wing for the last time, and they never came back. You know, and when we look at that, and then and we look at what's going on now, like even politicians, that is no different to what John Hume, or, or John Hume didn't lead people to their deaths. You know, they say, they, 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 they called the ceasefire, and then they, they, they called in the end of the war, and then proclaimed themselves peace pros. No, peacemakers? How can you... How can you proclaim yourself a peacemaker if you stop something you were encouraging for a generation? No. And ruin, no. Completely ruined the lives of a generation and stuff like that. Like, okay, it wasn't just there, it was the British Army and stuff like that. But they encouraged, encouraged the generation to fight a war. It's my generation who lost out in their youth and stuff like that. They encouraged that. And then when they ended all that, they proclaimed themselves as peacemakers. And these, as I say, I look back on that and it's, it's depressing and, and it's the thing, man. And when you go online, we often go on there like Twitter, you know, when you get these young guys now, most of them's fake names, and they're saying to you about, oh, what do we do then? We continue the war. You know, this seems to be a programmed response. Oh, are you want to continue the war, blah, blah. Despite the fact that I've said numerous times, that I'm opposed to the war or continuation of the war because of what happened in the past, because of seeing how we were led and people died. And these people became politicians turning the world, being white and dying in the White House and everywhere else, while young men at 16 and 17 is lying up in the ceremony. And then you're going on there and you're being accused of wanting to continue the war, despite the fact that they're knowing it. And in our program responses, what's your alternative? But as a friend of mine says, how can you have an alternative to the lives that were squandered? There's no alternative to that. The alternative was always there. End the war. So your issue then, Dixie, is that people you believe who died, their lives could have been saved because there was an opportunity to end that campaign of violence earlier and there was a chance for peace earlier. Lucian Fein and, and the former IRA leadership would say that's not true. You know, how what why have you formed that opinion? Well, it's not that there was a chance of peace earlier. Adams admits himself, he admitted it at his brother's trial, Liam's trial, that him and Father Reid set out on the, post, the, the beginnings of the peace process. And, and we, we know that's when they approached hockey and stuff like that. That was 1987. So we knew they probably had intentions long before then of uh, ending it. And I believe that they intended to end it around the time of after the hunger strikes. That's it could have ended any time then. They could have ended when they realised that the war wasn't going to be a thing. What I always say was that I always say 
they, the British Army didn't defeat the IRA. It was their own leadership undermined them. That's how they were defeated. And they were undermining them for a long, long time. And by Adam's own omission, 1987. Therefore, there was a potential to, they should have just turned around and says they are, look, we can't bone this war. We, we can't beat the Brits and the Brits is not going to beat us. And it's going to go on and on and on. We need to find another alternative. And the other alternative, as far as I can see, is in the north, they took the path of the SDLP and on the south, they're now taking the same path as the Avalera, only at a lot quicker piss. Therefore, this all could have happened any time in the past. They always put up as the Unionists wouldn't accept this and stuff like this, and the British wouldn't have it. But you have to remember, they had to adhere to the Unionists and British demands before they even got on the government. The Unionists still don't accept them. To this day, they don't accept them. They hate them. So that's no excuse for not ending the war. Was that? Because so, the Unionists wouldn't accept them, they wouldn't accept the, the ceasefire and stuff like that. And then, years later, 1994, they call it, and then the loyalists and all follow suit. Although that's another scam, like the loyalists ceasefire and stuff like that. But this is what I'm saying: like these excuses, no, don't hold water. You know, you could have ended it any time. Along and probably if they had ended it back then or in the seventies, we were probably a bit closer to United Ireland today. That's a big claim to make, Dixie. And I mean, obviously, you didn't feel this way when you were on the blanket no. during the hunger strikes. When then did you start to have these feelings that basically you were, I don't know, done over by the, re- the Republican leadership? Well, when I got out of jail in May 1985, I uh, joined Sinn Féin. I came out of jail with ideas, ideas we talked about in jail, ideas we talked about during the blanket, about various things to help the people, change things to live with people. And I said for myself that there was no interest. The councillors were getting asked to go to Chantal, I still forgot, and they were laughing at me. There was no interest. They didn't want no interest to do this or anything else. And I just says to myself, no, that's, that's not worth going back to jail for what I'm seeing, stuff like that. And I uh, I left Sinn Féin. I left the whole lot behind. We walked away. I met my wife. We were married and stuff like that. But I walked away, you know, and stuff like this. But you have to realize at the same time that I walked away, little known to me, and a lot of others, there was a, a thing called the Dairy Project, was set in motion, and it was set in motion by two Quakers, and of course it couldn't happen without McGinnis, and it was winding down the wire, and Dairy, to, to see how things goes, and it, that, it was noticeable that for very few things was happening in the city around that time, about the 86, 87, and on up, it was noticeable that was happening. But, and then we found out in later years, of course, Declan Kearney and others were sent over to America to wind down uh, Norrid. So this was all, the whole thing towards the peace process was getting set in motion. 
you know. But as I say, I didn't know about the dairy experiment, and I didn't know about this and that. But the fact was, when this was going on, there were still guys dying, guys carrying bombs and stuff like that. They were still dying on the streets, and people were still getting killed on the streets while they were preparing the way for the slow path to peace. The war was going on through the rest of the north. So, but I often look back and say to myself now, if I had, and I look back at the guys who died back then, and I say to myself, well, if I had stayed, I could have been dead. Couldn't be, I mightn't have made it this far. Could have been dead. And what for? Nothing. And as I say, you know, therefore, it was good, as the best decision ever made. Uh, or else I would have been back in jail that too but uh, the death part was when I look back and I said I could have been killed or, or dead you know So when you came out of prison in 1995 you were prepared to go back into violence and carry out violence? Well I was prepared for the war you know but the fact of the matter was that you know I didn't see it going anywhere the war or stuff like that and with eight years and stuff like that but then I just decided within a short space of time, no, I wasn't, and I, I left. You know, you would have people saying, ah, oh, I so see you left the, you left the war in 1986 or whatever, you know, you'd have them pumped the guys. One guy in particular was using this and they caught it out like it was a guy that's very rich now, owns a lot of property and stuff like this, you know, and he didn't do much himself, although he was an IRA. You know, but this is the fact of the matter. You have to understand, there was a lot of guys in the ARA who didn't do anything. You know, they led, but they led from a safe distance. You know, so this was an art thing too. You know, there was guys who led from a safe distance. They are now, a lot of them is now very rich landlords and stuff like that, own bars and stuff like that. While the guys who actually fought died young. And that was going right back, I noticed that right back in my youth, as the 16 to 17 year olds, the guys that were recruited us on the ARA, that was sending us out, even the 16 year olds with bombs and stuff like that there, and, and rifles. They'd never done anything. A lot of them never went to jail. A lot of them were still there when we got out of jail. You know, this is, this is the, the thing too. And meanwhile, young young men and women was dying under the so-called leadership of people, I guess, OCs and stuff like this. And one guy, a very close friend, reminds after we had all went on the jail in 1976, the half of Chantal was wiped out. He was one of the few remaining. And he says what he remarked at the time, he couldn't believe there were so many IRA volunteers in Europe he didn't know about in, in Chantala because most of them was in, in intelligence. Now, what intelligence was, was guys who joined IRA, just to be able to say they were an IRA. They didn't do nothing, but they said, oh, we're we are on intelligence. So it had a massive intelligence, although half of them wasn't even intelligent, this is. You know, they weren't smart, but there was a lot of guys to join them like that, you know, to be able to say as an IRA, but they didn't do anything. This is all our intelligence and stuff like this. So take me on your own journey, Dixie, into violent republicanism. You know, what age were you 
when you became involved with the provisional IRA? I was about 16. As for most people my age, I got involved when we lived in the old Rosemount, the old terrace streets at the top of the hill on Craig and Hill. Uh, there was a police barracks two streets away. And of course, I was attacked in 1969. Uh, I was attacked again in 1970 when the British Army occupied it. And I always remember that, that growing up, that our street actually became the outer their defences of Rosemount Barracks. They built a sandbag post at the bottom of the street and they built a sandbag post at the top. Therefore, if you had to get out, you had to go through the sandbag posts uh, to get out. And as I say, there was always riding. I remember firing stones at the sandbag post at the top of the street and going on through the sandbag post at the bottom of the street to get into my house. You know, this is from when we were young kids, like, you know, 15, 14 kids. Then one day there was a bomb at the street, the Sanger at the bottom of the street, and there was the British soldiers, and the Bowling Green was killed, and half the roof was blown off our house. And these was this was the house that my generation of my family, and going right back to my great grandparents, had loved them, on the street, actually, the street, they had loved them. So we had a leaf. They are neighbours. My father was a Protestant, he was a Presbyterian. My favourite uncle, Uncle Ernie, was a Presbyterian. And my grandfather, of course, he was a Presbyterian. We had, I was born in England. My mother went to England in uh, the 50s with my father. I've never thanked me, but I always believe that it's because my granny, uh, her mother, didn't want her marrying a Protestant, so they cleared off to England. And um, my mother would never admit it, but that's what I've been told, you know, that, and then she came back, and came back, and we left from my granda, my father's father, they came back to Derry, and because I was named after him, Tom, you know, that we were very close. And uh, my grandfather was wounded in World War One in France, and I was, that's the first death I remember in my life, you know, and I still remember my granddad again to this day. And, but as I say, our neighbours was half and half. There were Protestants, Catholics. We played football in Brook Park with Protestants. We went out to walks in the field because you had no, no, nothing else to do then. That's why there was very few fat people. Back then, you know, we walked miles and miles to the fields out to Greenland and stuff like that. And it was all, I remember one day going out to Greenland and a police car pulled up. It was a whole crowd. It must have been about 20. And that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Policeman looked out. Now you see, man, and he says, where are you going, son? And he says, I'm going up to Greenlander. You know, but this was that, this young lad was a, now you see, man, son. This was back in the 60s. The uh, Protestants and Catholics, we played football together. We grew up, we were very close. And that all ended in 1969. Now, what my father always says, my father always told us a story. He always says there was two bands in Rosemount. There was the Ale Hicks band and the Orange band. They all drank together in Gregory O'Kane's bar. They shared instruments and they were friends. His friends was all Catholics and Protestants and vice versa. After the 12th, they came in and there was a bit of banter and stuff like that. There was no sectarian hatred and stuff like that. And he blamed Paisley. He says none of that was happened. They Paisley came along and he always blamed Paisley for it. And uh, of course, when we moved in after the bomb and stuff like that, we moved to Karen Hall, a housing estate, and it broke our hearts. But that's then when I became involved, firstly writing and stuff like that. And these guys took me aside and said, you're not a fear, they're stuff fearless and stuff like that. And I was a young guy. I was impressed with this. These guys is a rah, the IRA. No, they're telling me I'm feared. And I was recruited on the IRA. So what an interesting background. Dick say that you came from a mixed family. Your father was a Presbyterian, but still you ended up joining the IRA. You have to understand at the time that the British Army was attacking and raiding homes and beating us up and we're getting harassed as young people by the British Army. And the RUC was far worse. You know, to be, people would say, oh, we understood. Like I was only a kid. We didn't understand about gerrymandering. We didn't even know what it was or anything like that. But it was happening. Our parents know what was happening. And I almost have to say this, like my father was a Protestant, his family were Protestant. Our house was no different to the Catholic houses. We had no different. We we brought up handy mouth and stuff like that there. No, we were no different. And the other Protestants in the street were no different. They were led to believe that they were better than us. That was only them. They were told they were better than us. They believed they were better than us, but they weren't. We were all the same deep down. You know, that's one of the reasons now I don't have no time for religion. Because of, you know, 
that's that's what's divided us. But I, at the time, it was that we were getting harassed. The British Army was in our streets. It was our streets. It was our home and stuff like that. They were kicking on literally. They were kicking on our doors, you know, and they, we believed they had no right to be there at the time and, and, and stuff like that there, and they still have no right to be here. But what I'm saying is there was also a Protestant volunteer in Chantilla, uh, Davy Russell, who was killed carrying a bomb along with an arse. He was carrying a bomb. He was a Protestant. He loved just in Steelstown, which would have been a middle-class area above Chantilla. But the fact was he was going on the Chantilla. He was running around with guys. It's just where we were brought up. We happened to be brought up there, and this was that we were experiencing all this and stuff like this. You know, maybe if I'd have become from middle class or upper class areas, I don't know. We might have been better or slightly, but this was as we were working class kids and stuff like that. And the larger part that, as I say, and it was always the thing that these people was exploiting us. These people wasn't willing to do this themselves. Oh, we were often told, "Oh, I done my part, now it's your turn." No, this was the oldest one in the book. You know, this is your turn. But as I say, I believe that violence was the only way then, that it was the only way to achieve anything, and it was the only thing. But sure, it didn't work. Do you believe that there was an alternative to violence because... This week in the news, we've heard that some Sinn Féin leaders have said there was no alternative. What's your belief? Well, you see, Sinn Féin will be saying that this week, and they'll be saying something different, you know. Back then, I believe there was no alternative to the violence. That, that, that was, as I say, the British Army came on our streets. The, our no, the Catholic people was battened off the streets because they demanded civil rights and everything else. And they were beaten off the streets and after the Battle of Oxide and they, um, they sent on the British Army. The British Army came from England. They weren't, no, they came from England and they were a foreign force. They turned their guns, I think it was Bernadette Evelyn, says that, no, how could they be here to, to keep us apart if their guns is facing us? You know, their guns was fishing under the bogside when they landed, not anywhere else. And it was always Catholic doors getting kicked in and things like that and, and raided and stuff. Those and Protestant doors and stuff like that there. You know, Catholics was nationalists and all and Republicans was getting interned and stuff like this. So this was a foreign, as we say, in a foreign occupier. And th- that's why I believed in the war and I believed in that. But now looking back on seeing that the people who encouraged the war and who led the war didn't really believe in it. You know, it was an, uh, an opportunity and it was a way into a better uh, politics and stuff like that. But they used it. It's always happened in Ireland. The other with the Avalier and ones like that there. It's always happened and it'll continue to happen and it'll continue to go on. So they say, was there an alternative? Back then, no. They came on the our streets. They came on the our towns and cities from England. And they kicked on our doors. And they shot people dead and bully Sunday on our streets. And therefore, we believed 
people that was protesting peacefully. So that's why I believe there was no alternative back in. But now, as I say, the IRA leadership at a date, I don't know, but it must be before 1987, around that time, decided that there was an alternative, and they took that path, so it should have ended then. That's my point, you know. And for them as they say now, there was no alternative, they'll say something different next week, or the week after. So, Dixie, you you became involved with the IRA as a teenager. When did you carry out your first operation or job or whatever you want to call it? What was the first thing that you were asked to do officially by the IRA? Well, we started out keeping watch. We called it stagging. You stand on the street corner, you stand on an alleyway or stuff like that at different points in the housing estate. You watch for an army football throw coming, well, IRA volunteers would have been out operating or ready to sniper attack or bomb or something like that. That was one of the first, these were the first things you done, scouting. No scouting away and watching for the army and you play a whistle if you seen them and running and stuff like that there was one of the first. But the first thing that I remember was going to I suppose it was childhood, like, but going, getting sent down in sensory devices to burn the bus depot, burn all the buses. We were young kids then, 16 year olds. We were sent down to burn the bus depot, you know. So you, you were sent with, with bombs? Yeah, sensory yeah. devices. And did you have no fear? No, you don't have fear at that age. This was the, the thing. You don't, you think you're indestructible at that age. You don't realize. You know, now if I thought my son was doing that, I'd be terrified. You know, I would. You'd be terrified. You know, you do a lot of mad things, but, you know, when you're not age, you do crazy things. Like I remember walking along steel girders on a building site. On a, they were building a factory, and I was walking along a steel girders. Like, I wouldn't even claim that half of things. You know, you know, you don't think you're going to die. You don't believe you're going to die at that age. You believe we're struggling. And it was the same when we were in the IRA. We didn't, you know. And it was, we were running around with rifles and, 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 to say, shorts and carrying bombs and stuff like that there. You don't think that you're going to, even though you see young guys, which happened, getting blown up and stuff, you don't think it's going to happen to you. And your friend did die whilst transporting a bomb? Bad meaning, yes. Another friend of mine's was actually, he was 17, he was driving the car. He was behind the steering wheel when the bomb went off. I was a member of this group, he'd done time for it, so he served time for it, so it's not telling anything at a school. He was behind the steering wheel and went off, there was a flash, and he came around and he seen the flashing blue lights and stuff in the distance, and he looked behind him and there was the back of the car was a mangle, tangled mess of metal. He got his way out of the car and he he got he actually walked past the the army and all was coming up with him. He calmly walked past them, half his fist hanging off, and um, he was taken over the border. He was 17. And I remember that night as well. It was around Halloween. It was dark. When Jerry Craig and Davy Russell died, it was a beautiful, fantastic summer's day. 
they actually showed me the, the photographs of their body in the barracks, a headline on their journal. There was actually a child in Bram, was nearby. It was a miracle that no one wasn't killed. But these things stick me, you know, and when when you go on and then you see other young people, like my Bronco Bradley was shot in the back of the British Army. He was in the blanket and he got out and back there. And you look back and you see, you know, you see the many people young that died along the way. And here I am now telling my story. I'm 65. You know, I made it this far. These guys didn't, someone didn't get out of their 20s, under their 20s. You referenced the group uh, there, Dixie, and for anyone who's listening or watching, particularly if you're watching, we are in the Ex-Prisoners Outreach Programme Centre, which is in William Street in Derry. In the background there, we have um, a, replica. a replica, if you want to describe it there, Dixie. And this, this centre, I've been in it a few times, speaking to different prisoners and yourself, and I notice that a, a lot of people, tourists particularly, come in here, and there is a lot of Republican regalia, things from the the, the prisons, and 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 there is ex prisoners here to talk to. Uh, I know I'm kind of jumping forward, but we're talking about the center. You talked a lot about trauma there that maybe didn't seem like trauma when you were a teenager. You know, when you're sitting here talking to other prisoners, are you realising that you are suffering trauma in any way? Well, for a long time after I got out 19, I didn't really suffer from trauma. I took a bit of getting used to the crossing the streets and crowds of people, but eventually I got used to it. But I didn't suffer for a long while. What it was actually happened was that when Richard O'Raw brought out his book, Blanket Men. And Richard's a former IRA prisoner as well. And he was a PRO during the blanket. He was actually right by Bick McFarland's advisor. Bick didn't do nothing without getting advice from Richard. And when he brought out that book, I was in the cell with Richard, or in the wing, or in the wing with Richard. I was in the wing that time with Bobby Sands. And... Like McFarland and the others. And when he brought the book out and he says that the British had made an offer on or about the 5th of July 1981 and they had looked at the offer coming back and they had accepted it and said word outside that they were accepting the offer to end the hunger strike and that Adam sent word back in and didn't go far enough. Then, having been on the wing, me and others I spoke to realised, do you remember word went round the wing? The Brits were moving and Joe McDonald's not going to help you die. And then nothing more happened. We all realised this is what was happening. And guys actually came out that was up in the cells beside Bick. And Richard and says that's what happened. The two of them agreed out the wonder, an Irish, that there was enough there to end it. And they sent word out. That was traumatic, given that I had known 
Bobby and Tom McAwee. It's sent the cell with them. Like, you know, when you're set, living in a cell in your own excitement for that length of time, I was in a cell with Bobby for three months, and I was in a cell with Tom for about seven months. You know, that's a long time when you're, don't get out of yourself for 24 hours a day and you're living your own excitement and stuff like that. You know, you know each other like brothers. You know everything about each other. You tell each other stories. And that's the only way they passed out. So, but, and we had watched these men going out of the wing for the last time and not be returned. And when I realized what they had gone through on the hunger strike, a long drawn out hunger strike, starving and their, their families pleading them that they die, they come off it and stuff like that, watching their mother and their father and their friends. You know, I didn't go on the, I didn't put my name because I knew I couldn't do it. I couldn't put my family through that. I couldn't put my mother through that. Couldn't break her heart, slowly break her heart, you know, long drawn out. And these guys done this, they walked and they, they decided like that they were going to die on hunger strike and, and their family suffered too. We forget that, their family suffered great. And at the end of the day, after four deaths, that Thatcher was bit, she had come and she had made an offer which included her own clothes not as a privilege as a right that was on it not as a privilege as a right and that um, that was always we've always believed and I remember going right back to when we were in um, H6 on the leadership wing and I remember being told that that's what they were they were actually the dark was discussing when a well-known member of the blanket, the leading IRA man, left the protest that had nearly wrecked the blanket. The guys were saying, if he can leave, I'm not going to name his name, he's name, but if he can leave, we can leave. This guy was up there along with Bick and Bobby Sands and guys like this. We can leave. And the guys was going. You couldn't blame them. I don't blame them. We were going through. But the dark end says, look, if this keeps going, I guess we end up with 100 men in the corner of the thing, and the hitch blocks, and forgot about it. So they talked about then in 1979 about going on the system and And the only thing that stopped it was the the, the prison uniform. We simply couldn't wear it. Therefore, if we had got our own clothes at any time, the, the protest would have ended. And Thatcher, here Thatcher was about the 5th of July, and one of the things was our own clothes. At all times, we actually got when the when the the hunger strike ended on uh, the third of October, nineteen eighty one. Three days later, we got what they had offered. Three days later, uh, prior had given us what had been offered back at that date. You know, so as I say, this played a lot on my. No mind and stuff like this, and a still place in my mind it makes me very angry and everything else. And now I'm seeing people saying this seems to be a thing me now that the, the the sacrifices of the hunger strike left us where we are today, brought us to where we are today. Nobody would have died for that. I wouldn't have thrown stones for it, and I'm certain a man wouldn't have died in hunger strike and put their families through that for what John Young had already been doing long before that. 
some of the people who died during the hunger strikes, Bobby Sands, Tom McElwee, all provisional IRA members like yourself, they were your closest friends. I think you even said there that they were closer than a brother because you were sharing a cell yeah. with, with these people. <laughs> Did you actually believe that when they went on hunger strike that they were going to die or did you believe that the British government would have given? I believe the British government would have given on, especially after maybe two deaths or whatever. You know, I believed that I always believed that they were given on. But then the longer it went on, we were starting to say, it doesn't look as this is going to be a long drawn out. You know, this is not going to end. It's never going to end. And stuff like that. Now, Bobby Sands went on that hunger strike. He went on first because <coughs> he knew he was going to die. Uh, he made Francis Hughes second because he knew he was definitely die. Because effectively what happened during the first hunger strike was, and despite what people's trying to spin it and stuff like that, the first hunger strike ended because three men told the dark they were coming off it. <coughs> the dark promised Sean McKinney wouldn't let him die. Sean was going on their coma. And these key guys in the dark says, I'm not going to watch Sean McKenna die and then watch the hunger strike fall apart. We all knew that. Spoken to hunger. I thought it was amazing that things when they heard this. Seen a document. They seen a document and the dark ended. <coughs> Lawrence McKeown lied when he says that the dark says, Bobby says the dark fucked up. That was a lie, Bobby says it was the first hunger strike was a fuck up because there was men on it wasn't more than they die. And I, I want to put that record straight because it's been spun and the, the, spun and spun. And there's men out there, and I've spoken to former blanket men, and men was on the wing. We all know that's what happened during that first hunger strike. As for accepting that <coughs> an offer or a document, Adams wrote himself, and it's there a document that Tetation that Fuller Maker got the document at uh, Belfast Airport. He brought it to Adams in a house in Belfast. And while Adams was looking at the document, uh, Tom Hartley bust on and says the hunger strike was over. Therefore, Adams was looking at the document and there was nothing on the document. The document merely says, uh, around a lot of waffle and everything else, it merely says that all prisoners could wear civilian-type clothing during the working week. He didn't renege on that. They gave it on and was thrown back at him. It was another form of prison uniform. You know, and I, 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 for years, I ignored all this. But then when they, when, when Adams and all our starting blaming and, and McKeown started blaming the dark and stuff like this, I says, no, I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm going to say how it happened and how others know it happened. The dark is Brandon Hughes. Yes. Who you refer to. Yeah. He was another close friend of yours. Well, I wouldn't say a, the dark would have been a close friend. Now he was on. I was on the wing with him since uh, we moved to Hit Six in, in February nineteen uh, seventy nine until he went on the, the first hunger strike. The dark was a man we all admired. He was a guy who led from the front at all times. He was a legendary figure in the IRA. He was older than the rest of us, and. He had always, inside and out, was, was a man who didn't ask others to do what he wasn't willing to do himself. Unlike 
people who claimed that they were never in the IRA. You know, they might as well have not been in the IRA, from what I'm told. But what I'm saying is, the dark wasn't like that. The dark, and, and he was highly respected. He was up there during the blanket protest. It was him and Bobby Sands. They were the two guys we respected because they were the guys that led from the front, you know. I know you've talked a lot about Bobby Sands during this interview and you spent a lot of time with him. I mean, what type of person was he? Bobby Sands was the thinker and he was a teacher. It was a storyteller and he was a Gilgore. He was a lot of things for one person. He was a very talented singer. A lot of people have to say he sounded like Ross Stewart. I always although I don't like the man. I, I think he sounded like Bono, you know. And he had a love for all types of music, from the Beatles to traditional music and Gaelic and stuff like that. It was like, you know, and. As I say, he believed in keeping men's minds occupied. He had seemed to have this thing about books that he read. He could remember them. And in a lot of cases, he added to them. With parts up, he extend them, and he would serialize these books out the door. And, and, and you had the likes of Trinity, Billy, and yours, and his most famous book, Jet. We, in later years, I tried to find this book, Jet, and I couldn't find it. And Dennis O'Hearn, who wrote his autobiography, talked about it, and he says they couldn't find it as other blanket men says. So we came to the belief that Bobby made this story up himself. And Jet was a story. Jet was the, was the initials this guy was called Jeremiah Eisenhower Turnbull. He was, his father was a three-star general, and he had to go to Vietnam. He was a conscientious objector, so he faked his own death and came back and had the, the roads in America Harley. And it was a fantastic story. It kept everybody going and stuff like that. There was no Republican element there or anything like that. It was a, a lovely story. And everybody loved it, you know. And it was things like this. And he could tell our stories. His poetry was amazing. He's singing. And as I say, like that. And he encouraged speaking the Irish language, teaching it and, uh, teaching it and speaking it at all times. The the blocks was like, a, and you were learning Irish language, and it was you were writing it on the wall, I guess, was writing it down, and you were memorizing it and stuff. Sometimes we would have used the corner and the metal part of the rosary piece to write if you hadn't got the wee pencils or stuff. It was smuggled in, you know. You wrote out and um, the Irish, and you memorized it, and then you rubbed it off and stuff like that. Of course, when you move cells or the wing shift, it would have been gone when you come back. It would have been blasted off the wall. But this is how we learned, and we learned speaking it and making up stories and stuff like this. Bobby encouraged all this. Bobby knew that the thing they do was to keep men's minds occupied at all times. What was the blanket protest like? How many years did you spend on it, Dixie? And for anyone who's listening to this podcast and doesn't know what the blanket protest was. Could you explain it? Well, the blanket protest came about because of the attempt to criminalise the Republican struggle that in uh, March 1976, Roy Mason decided 
that uh, prisoners were no longer political. There was guys still in the cages and uh, and long case because they went, they came in before that date, or if you had been charged before that date, at a later time you went to the cages. But a few were charged after that date. You were a criminal, common criminal. You had to wear the prison uniform and do prison work. And when I came on in September 1976, the uh, Keir Nugent had started the blanket protest. He had refused to wear that. He was the first blanket man. And they gave him the prison uniform, which was like denim, dark denims, and stuff like that. And he had system and he didn't nail it to me back. And he... They gave him a blanket and the towel, and they put the blanket around him, and he became the first blanket man. And it was a pro, it was a, a protest against the criminalization. We weren't going to accept the tag as criminals, or we weren't going to wear a prison uniform. And here in the Union started, and it was slowly followed by other guys who went on after him, and then it became about 300, maybe at a time 350 men. I don't think it went much beyond that. You know, but that's how it became because we had nothing else to wear under this blanket. The blanket was covered us at night, but during the day it also covered us. And I'd got the stage during the protest. What when we started out, we were in a metal bed with a sponge mattress, with a locker, and stuff like that. But as the beatings and the hammerings and and everything continued, and especially when the dark came up from the cages. And joined the protest, we escalated it, smashed the windows, smashed the furniture, and we were left with sponge mattresses, uh, sleeping on the floor, on sponge mattresses. And the thing about lying on the concrete floor in a sponge mattress is condensation. And uh, it meant at night, when you got up the next morning, you had to put them up against the wall to try and dry them out. The only thing that saved us was the heating pipes, two heating pipes were running along the wall below the window. And these mattresses, as I say, became rather wet. But that was what we, we existed on. You know, sometimes you wonder how we done it. And the blanket protest turned into the dirty protest? Well, we wouldn't call it the dirty protest, the no wise protest, you know, uh, as we would, uh, no others call it, the, but we don't, we don't call it, we call it the no wise protest, you know. Because that's what it was. We refused to wash, refused to clean, and then we started putting this treatment on the walls. You know. I mean, when you were asked to do that, did you, you know, did you feel disgusted? Did you feel what did you feel like? Naturally, you know, you have to imagine yourself like when doing this. Like you naturally, we felt disgusted and stuff like that. But we also believe that the screws couldn't cope with us, they couldn't cope with the smell, they couldn't cope with having to go on themselves like that, you know, I would deter them and stuff like that, but like us, they eventually got used to it too, you know, when they would come along with things. See, they began to fire a very strong bleach on the cells and stuff, and this was really affecting guys, you know, there was a lot of horrific things went on. They stuck hoses on the door and left guys standing all night and puddles of water through in the freezing cold nights. You know, they were doing things like that to try and break us. You know, whereas we thought that putting their own excrement in the walls, you know, this would hasten the end of the protest. And therefore, 
he had used to, it's, it's amazing when you get used to. People can get a, a used to anything, living on a concrete box day after day, and you know, you can get used to that. It becomes commonplace, you know. And could you get used to the maggots crawling over yes, you? Yes, you get used to them too. We got used to the maggots. We started to feed them the birds. You know, it was a form of entertainment, feeding the maggots to the birds. But it was, at the start, disgusting when you seen all this. See, the, the rotten food that we didn't eat was thrown in the corner, and that began to pile up, and then the maggots began to come out of it. So, how long did you do the protest for? I went on the protest after it was sentenced in June 1977, and I stayed on it until it ended after the hunger strike in 19, October uh, 1981, about four years and four months. Well, you know, there was guys on it a lot longer than that, you know, and there was guys, you know, coming and going, you know, but, but that was, I ended up serving, uh, served nine years out of a 12 year sentence, but in the end it was half remission. You know, so I've done an extra three years in jail. A lot of all the other guys done the same, like done extra time because of their protests and other things. Do you still consider yourself a Republican? I'll be buried Republican. The day I they help a Republican, I believe I've known Republican, although I don't believe that armed struggle or any sort of way will achieve anything. Now, especially with technology and all that they have now, it's impossible. But even back there, when we seen how strong the ARA was, how big it was, uh, with the memberships even, uh, and dairy and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, what we are now realising was that the ARA was health, heavily infiltrated with informers. We know that now, and stuff like that. So what would it be like now? These guys don't even need informers now. They can sit miles away and listen to you talking. And they can turn off the TV and, and unbeknown to you, they can tune down the TV. So you're not going to defeat that there, these guys, Langley. And, but I'm a Republican. I'll always want the United Ireland and a better life and stuff like that. I didn't waste half of my life. But as I, I don't believe that an armed struggle or anything else is ever going to achieve it, never. What's your opinion on so-called dissident Republicans. I know more recently, after the murder of Lara McKee, that there's been a crackdown, and that, that came from MI5. What's your view on those Republicans who still feel there is a need for a war and violence? Well, there's no war. Let's be friendly. That's not a war. That's a joke. The only person that they've killed was Laura McKee. The young girl was starting out in the life of a journalist. She sat on here with us for a full day and was enthusiastic about what was in front there, talking to old men and listening to our stories the same way you're doing. And two weeks later, we got Lyon and Craig on. Dead. I got very angry. We all got very angry. And we got very angry. And what was it for? The wee girl's dead. Nothing's been achieved. They've achieved nothing. They don't know. And I, and I believe that the intelligence agencies as happy to let it go on and happy to let they arrest people, certain people, they arrest certain people and let certain people go because of funding. 
that justifies their funding and everything else, and it's uh, an acceptable level of violence. But there is nothing happening except for the odd kneecaps and whatever else and and stuff like that. You know, that's not a war. It's no, it's nowhere near a war and stuff like that. So. The only people's benefits in MI5 and then the likes of Sinn Féin can say, look, our peace process, blah, blah, blah. And I've scissored them often enough that Sinn Féin's able to point to you and say, these people here, stuff like that there. But there's nothing really happening in terms of a war. So the best thing they could do is end it. Put the guns away or do whatever and end it. Because as far as I know, I know from, I can't speak for everybody, but all, a lot of old Republicans are saying the same, that it's not going anywhere, it's a joke, and that they should just end it and, and take a, 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 a more community-based approach to getting the support of people and stuff like that without the need for violence. Or Last question, Dixie. Do you believe that there will ever be a united Ireland? Oh, I believe there will. I believe more so now because of Brexit. I believe Brexit brought us closer to the United Ireland than Sinn Féin ever has. And strangely enough, Sinn Féin strongly opposed in recent years because of funding. You know, they always opposed the EU, but when they realised they were going to lose their funding, they supported it. But the fact of the matter is, and we're seeing it with a protocol and stuff like this, and the Brexit is going to bring us closer to the United Ireland because simply because of the fact that business interests and we're seeing it, despite what the unions are saying, that uh, there's been a lot of increases in, in, in uh, profit and in, in north south and stuff like this and, and everything else because of Brexit. And I believe it's at the same time that the British no longer wants the shackle of the north around their necks. And I've seen a recent survey where I think it was 47% of the people in England says that the, the UK should be broken up. And, and it's, you know, I think it's in the near future that this is going to happen, that, that, that I was going to be broken up. But I sort of question, you know, what is going on as Sinn Féin and the British, because of recent statements they've made and because of where they are with the royal family and stuff, are they going along the lines of the United Ireland within the British Commonwealth? Mary Lou has says only a couple of years ago that the British Commonwealth should be on the table. Chris Donnelly has says that the uh, Republicans have often spoke about joining the British thingy. And don't forget, Alex Maskey is the president of the Stormont Commonwealth Committee, as was Mitchell McLaughlin, you know. That was the whole thing, me. So I believe that all this falling over things. I believe this is where this could be leading. That a united Ireland within the British Commonwealth. 